Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Islanders, before we get into tonight, I want to tell you why I chose this case. I've always been a bit fascinated by one-hit wonder bands. As a kid, there were plenty of them. The song would be everywhere, and if you watched Top of the Pops or Countdown or whatever MTV show there was on back in the day, you would see this band playing this one song. They're nothing. The band would disappear, but that one song would seem to just play on forever. And often, the band would still be around touring, but every set they played, everyone would be waiting for this headline song, just that one hit wonder song. And as the years went on, it would be that it's that song that the audience would sing along to in these small one-night venues that the bands tended to play at. So tonight will feature one of the members of a one-hit wonder band. Now, the band is Bob Cuban and the Inman. And we're going to look at the lead singer, Walter Scott, and the ironically titled 1966 hit song, The Cheetah. Now, I haven't been able to get the song out of my head. It's quite a catchy tune. It's been stuck in there for about a month or so. Now, I'm going to cut a little bit of it in now. And I hope I don't get any copyright issues, but I'll just put a little bit in. Look out for the cheetah. Make way for the bullhorn fly. Look out for the cheetah. He's gonna build you up just to let you die. Okay, so now it's in your head as well. All right, references tonight are St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the Bellevue News Democrat, Mount Vernon Register News, court records, and a bit from Forensic Files. Okay, it's December the 27th, 1983, and we go to 30 Pershing Lake Drive, St. Peter's, Missouri, where 40-year-old Walter Simon Nothias Jr., also known as Walter Scott, goes out to get a battery for his green Lincoln Continental, and this is at around 7 p.m. Walter's wife, Joanne Marie Nathias, she notices Walter hasn't returned and ends up calling police at 3am. Now, Walter, at 6 feet tall and 172 pounds, had been wearing a navy blue and white jogging suit, black deck shoes and a thin white jacket. Now, I, I checked the records, the weather records for this night, and it was 45 degrees Fahrenheit or 7 degrees Celsius. Not exactly the clothing you'd wear on such a cold night, but let's go on. Now, Walter was a lead singer from the 1960s bands, Bob Cuban and the Inman. Walter's first marriage broke up as he would often be cheating while on tour, and it's one of his flings, Joanne Calcutta, that he would make his second wife. So that's Joanne Nathias. Walter would go on to start his own band, The Walter Scott Show, and sing that song at every gig. And during 1983, so the hit song was in 66, but 1983, he was touring with his show, and his next gig would be a New Year's Eve show at the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania. Walter was also at this time having an affair with one of his dancers, Suzanne Flynn. 
So the next day after he's gone missing, the 28th of December, with no sign of Walter, a couple of neighbours see his car parked on the top deck at the short-term parking at Lambert St. Louis International Airport. Now, interestingly, it looks like the neighbours were tipped off by his wife, Joanne, to check out the airport. Walter's father, Walter Sr., would tell investigators that his son would never have left town wearing jogging clothes and that he would have changed into a suit and tie if he'd caught a plane to leave town. His mum said that he was upbeat about his New Year's Eve gig coming up and that everything had been going great, with Walter looking forward to one of his best years yet. At this stage, though, his parents weren't overly concerned and expected him to check in at any time. Over the next few days, investigations would find that there was no flight booking for Walter and calls to close friends and others in his personal phone book turned up nothing. The garage he was supposed to have gone to for a car battery said he hadn't been there. All the venues that he had played at, they haven't seen him either. Walter's parents, they ended up combing the wooded area around his home, but again, they found nothing. They even called Aruba, which I assume was one of his favourite places either to take time off or play gigs. On the 3rd of January, investigators called in the major case squad as they were now treating Walter's disappearance as a homicide. Forensics on Walter's car, that turned up nothing. And he wasn't into drugs or gambling, and police just had no leads. But it took police days to impound and even search his car after it was found. By the 22nd of January, Walter Sr. announced a $3,000 reward for information on his son's disappearance, and at around this time, the major case squad withdrew from the case, leaving it up to the regular cops to investigate further. Now, I think this was because they just had absolutely no leads, just nothing to go on. Joanne, Walter's wife, would file for divorce on August the 24th of 1984. Now, that's less than eight months after he went missing. Now, she does this on the grounds of adultery, emotional abuse and abandonment. She also wants alimony and child support for the couple's twins. Now, what I found strange is that reading the newspaper clipping from my research, virtually nothing in there is from Joanne. There's just references to what Walter's parents have said to the media. Now, Walter's parents would often drive past his home at 30 Pershing Lake Drive, hoping to see him walk out the door or just be in the front yard. But they didn't see Walter, but soon they would see another man, and they'd seen him before, 44-year-old Jim Williams. Now, Jim was an electrician and had previously done work on Joanne and Walter's house. In fact, Jim was seen by Walter's parents going through his gun collection and jewellery just the day after he was reported missing. Now, on the table, there was only two of Walter's three guns. One was missing, and that was a .22 calibre pistol. Jim had also recently had a tragedy. Now, his wife, Sharon Williams, had died in a car crash. Now, that was just two months before Walter went missing. Well, she didn't die in the car crash, she survived the crash, but Jim pulled the plug on her life support system in hospital when he was told she'd probably never recover. There was no autopsy carried out on Sharon's body, and I'll go into more detail about Sharon's death a little bit later. This Jim Williams character was not only fixing the electrics at Joanne's house, he was fixing her up as well. 
with no sighting of Walter, his wife Joanne divorcing him, and this recently widowed Jim guy on the scene, to me, this looks a bit sus. Ah, and Joanne was very quick to cancel Walter's upcoming gigs when he went missing. She did this starting the day after he went missing. Joanne and Jim would eventually marry on April the 4th, 1986. Then after Walter's disappearance was pretty much a cold case, forensic pathologist Dr Mary Case came to town in May of 86 and was appointed the county's chief medical officer. Now one of the case files she was given was that of the death of Sharon Williams. Even though her death had been attributed to the car crash, there were many things about it that didn't sit well with investigators. The location of a body in the car didn't make sense. Sharon always wore her seatbelt and yet she was found under the dash of the car on the passenger side. She was also soaked in gasoline and her injuries seemed too severe for the corresponding damage to the car. Also, Sharon was a small woman and the driver's seat was pushed all the way back. Dr Case was able to, after battling the courts, get Sharon's body exhumed to do a full autopsy on April the 1st, 1987. Now, Dr. Case, well, she found that Sharon had died from two blows to the back of the head with a blunt instrument, possibly a pole or a crowbar, and her cause of death was ruled a homicide with Jim Williams, the prime suspect. Investigators now suspected Jim Williams and Joanne of having something to do with the disappearance of Walter Scott. But they still had no body and hadn't able to be hadn't been able to find him alive either. Even one of Jim's sons, Brett Williams, on hearing that his mum's death was now being treated as a homicide, he found it strange that his father didn't seem to care about it and didn't even call up the cops for more information. Now, this is three years after Walter went missing, and of course Sharon died a couple of months before then. Then there's a huge break in the case. On April the 6th, 1987, Jimmy Williams, Jim's other son, was in Monroe County Jail being interviewed over the death of his mum, Sharon Williams. During the interview, he teased detectives about not being able to find Walter Scott. Now, it looks like young Jimmy and his father didn't get along. And soon, and this was maybe to help him get out of prison a bit earlier... Jimmy told detectives that he thought it was strange that just after Walter went missing that his father built a huge flower box on top of the concrete cistern out the back of his house and he did this during a massive snowstorm. Now a cistern or we call it a septic tank sometimes is for houses not hooked up to the town sewerage. It's where all your toilet stuff and possibly some of the wastewater goes And it all (laughs) combines down there to break down. It's often a large concrete tank with a concrete lid, maybe a couple of metres wide or so. On April the 10th, armed with a search warrant, Dr Case and detectives go to Williams' house at 5647 Guttermouth Road, St Charles County, where they dismantled the flower box on top of the septic tank and then removed the heavy concrete lid. Inside, floating in the sludge, bound at the wrists, knees, ankles and wearing a blue and white jogging suit was the decomposing body of Walter Scott, weighed down with bricks. On the back of the jogging suit there was a small hole which looked like a bullet hole. Also found in the cistern, 
were Walter's driver's license, credit cards and other cards belonging to him. An autopsy would reveal that the cause of death was a bullet wound which entered from the back and went into the chest. Jim Williams was soon arrested and charged with the murder of Sharon Williams and Walter Scott. Now Jim denied shooting Walter in the back and disposing of his body. He even told detectives that if I'm going to kill a man, I'm going to shoot him right between the eyes. I ain't going to take the chance of missing the heart by shooting him in the back. He even tried to implicate his son, stating that his son hated him so much and was it was just a big setup. He was being framed. Now, as the case got media attention, more things started to come out. Brett, Williams's son, had spoken to paramedics that were on the scene of his mother's car crash. Now, they told him that they'd attended many fatal car crashes and this just looked like the car had slowly driven off the road, not nearly enough to kill anyone, and that the position of her body in the car looked strange as well. They also thought it was weird. She was covered in gasoline, but the fuel lines and fuel tank were not damaged. Other witnesses on the scene described putting out a small grass fire just aside from the car. And what it looked like was that someone had poured gasoline over the car and body, then backed away, pouring a trail of gasoline, and then lit it. But the fire didn't reach the car and only burnt in that immediate area away from the car. The circumstantial evidence was mounting when acquaintances of Jim told investigators how he'd been asking around about hitmen a month before Walter went missing. William said that the job paid $5,000 and had to look like an accident. He didn't mention a name, but stated that the man was somewhere in Minnesota at the time. Now, this wasn't looking looking good for Jim Williams at all, and then Joanne would also be charged with Walter's murder. Now, this case would take five years to get to court. To start with, this was going to be a largely circumstantial case, so the prosecution really had to dot their I's and cross their T's. Then there was so much bullshit from Williams and Joanne's defence lawyer, defence lawyers, which further delayed the trial. All this time, though, Jim Williams and Joanne, they're out on bail, living in Walter's house, and his parents still drove by occasionally just to check it out. So the prosecution theorised that Jim Williams had been contracted by Walter to do some repairs around the house. With Walter on the road with his band a lot, Jim would drop by to visit Joanne. Now Joanne confided in Jim that she knew Walter had affairs and Jim saw the opportunity to get some and lent a comforting ear. Soon Jim and Joanne were lovers. Jim then murdered his wife, Sharon, by beating her across the back of the head with a pole or crowbar. He then staged a car crash, putting Sharon's body in the car. He unsuccessfully tried to burn out the wreck, leaving Sharon's body covered in fuel. Then, he probably waited for Walter to come home and get relaxed in his lounge attire of jogging suit, and then he shot him in the back then disposed of his body in the cistern at the back of his place and drove Walder's car to the airport car park. It was the great work by Dr Case that ended up having Sharon's body exhumed to reveal that she'd actually been murdered rather than had died from that car crash and because of that finding, Jimmy, Walter's son, was interviewed over his mother's death. Now, of course, Jimmy told investigators that he was suspicious when in a snowstorm his father was building a huge flower box on the cistern out back. And then 
This led to Walter's body being found. And before Dr. Case was employed by the county, right, they, they weren't sure that this was going to be money well spent getting a proper forensically trained medical officer. But she soon paid for herself, I can tell you. Well, in January of 1993, Jim Williams would be found guilty of two counts of capital murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Joanne's case was to be held in April of 1993, but it wouldn't go ahead. Her murder charge would be dropped as all the evidence evidence against her was circumstantial and she would plead guilty to felony hindering prosecution, doing about 10 months inside and around four years probation. But I reckon she should have gone down for murder as well. Now, let me give you just a little bit more detail on what happened when Walter went missing. At 7.30am on the 28th, Joanne made a missing persons report to a deputy sheriff. She stated that Walter was wearing a blue jogging suit when he went and left for the garage. At 9am, Joanne called the music director of Walter's band, advised him that Walter was missing and asked whether they should start cancelling band jobs. So she's already cancelling his gigs, even though he's only been missing for a few hours. And I'll go on. Walter's parents arrived at the house before noon on the 28th, and when they arrived, Jim Williams and Joanne were examining jewellery from Walter's briefcase with a magnifying glass and assessing its quality. They also see two of Walter's three pistols on the table. Joanne then again got on the phone, starting cancelling Walter's gigs. Now, these gigs were seven weeks away. He's only just gone missing. When Walter's mum asked why she's cancelling his gigs, Joanne replied, well, he's not coming back to do these. Now, how does she know he's not coming back? That afternoon, Joanne and Williams spoke about retrieving Walter's truck and trailer from Pennsylvania. Also that day, Joanne asked two friends to go to the airport and see if they could find Walter's car. So, (laughs) she pretty much knew where the car was, the Green Lincoln Continental. Now, the friends went and they did find that car. Later, Joanne asked them to retrieve the vehicle and Williams took them to the airport for that purpose. Now, on the way, one of the friends said he hoped they wouldn't find anything in the car. Now, Williams responded... Don't worry, you're not going to find anything. He's long gone. You'll never see him again. Now, William spent that night at Joanne's house. Is this already sus to you or anyone who was watching at the time what was going on? The next day after talking to Joanne, Walter's music director went to Pennsylvania to retrieve the truck trailer and the band equipment. When he arrived, Williams and Joanne were already there. And they asked him if Walter had any bank accounts in other cities and where Walter kept his record books and jewellery. I reckon this Joanne bitch was just as bad as Williams and I reckon she pulled the trigger as well. Ah, and by the way, no murder weapon or Walter's third pistol was ever found. Well, Jim Williams died in prison on Sunday the 11th of September 2011, age 75. He'd reckon he was innocent right up to the end. Now, I found a few dead Joanne Williams out there, but couldn't be sure if it was really her or if she was still alive. So, look out for the cheater. Like I said at the start, sometimes these one-hit wonders end up being locked into some hell on earth. 
forever playing that one song over and over, year after year, decade after decade. The cheaters were Walter, Joanne and Jim. Walter, who sung about watching out for the cheater, ended up being murdered by his cheating wife and her lover. Joanne and Jim Williams could have easily divorced their other halves at the time, but they knew they would get a better deal financially if they just murdered them. Well, they nearly got away with it. So again, watch out for the cheater. Well, that's about it for this week. It's a little bit short and sweet, but I did have the lovely Kate flying to town this week, so I've had to take care a little bit. Okay, I'd also like to thank my patrons past and present for keeping the island's lights on. Thanks so much to Richard McCain. Special thanks to all my patrons as well. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. A free beer is always nice after dumpster diving into these cases. But can I just ask that maybe you take time to share the podcast wherever and whenever. The Island is one of the few truly independent true crime podcasts out there that is still commercial free. Best of all, it's free of charge to help the island out that way. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com. Everything's there. You can stream the episodes. You can download them from there if you don't want to use iTunes or anything like that. Merch, social media, the whole thing. Also, if you want to email me, which is the best way to get in touch with me, you can contact me there. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Fuck a line, guys.